0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's Uli Bears Think About It. On the podcast, Uli interviews all kinds of interesting people about all kinds of interesting things. He has three series that I'd highly recommend, one on free speech, another on great books, and finally, one on affirmative action. You can find Think About It on Apple Podcasts, Or you can just go to Uli's website, which is ulrichbear.com. That's U-L-R-I-C-H-B-A-E-R.com. And you can download or listen to episodes there. We think this is a terrific podcast. In fact, it's so terrific that we're going to offer you a little taste of it. The episode you're about to hear is from Think About It, and I hope you enjoy it.
1: Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not Cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Nella Larsen's 1929 novel Passing is one of the great achievements in American literature. This novel from the Harlem Renaissance tells the story of two women, both of whom can pass from being black to white and back again. I spoke with Emily Bernard, Julian Lindsey Green and Gold Professor of English at the University of Vermont. She's the author of many books, among them, Remember Me to Harlem, The Letters of Langston Hughes and Carl Van Vechten. Some of my best friends, Writers on Interracial Friendship, Michelle Obama, The First Lady in Photographs, and most recently, Black is the Body, Stories from My Grandmother's Time, My Mother's Time, and Mine. I'm really pleased. First of all, I want to say hello. I have Emily Bernard here today, who is a professor at the University of Vermont, author of many books. First of all, Emily, thank you for joining me on Think About It. Lily, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's It's great. I've looked forward to this conversation for such a long time. So this is on Ella Larson's passing, but also about your recent book, Black as the Body, Stories from My Grandmother's Time, My Mother's Time, and Mine. Mm. And there's a quote in that book, right in the middle of the book, that really sort of stopped me in my tracks. And before we go to passing, I wanted to put that quote back in your mind. I mean, you wrote this quote, but I don't know if you remember it. So, This is in the middle of the book, and you say, you're talking about your family, and you say, we lived in this Crayola world with all these different colors. And you said, in my mind, in my experience, they were distinct. Race was trauma. Color was beauty. Mm -hmm. And those six words, race was trauma, color was beauty, really kind of stopped me. And I thought, okay race was trauma, color was beauty. Mm -hmm. Such a shift between these two words would open up and the book, sort of a very poignant book, Mm -hmm. opens up with a story of trauma and suffering and then goes to you actually through loss, this kind of family connection, the end of the book toward where you go to your grandmother's funeral really moving. Mm -hmm. So if you stay with this sentence, can you unpack this a bit? Absolutely.
2: I love that you found that sentence because I think in some ways it's one of the truest sentences I've ever written.
1: (laughs) I mean it took that
2: moment watching my daughters and watching them you know reveal what they knew about race which was something I had not taught them which was you know race was distinct from what their bodies actually looked like you know it was some other thing that you know they had gleaned from watching television and hearing me and my husband talk and I'm sure the other adults in their world talk they put it together that these were distinct things they intersected but you know I, you know, for, and I realized at that moment that for me, I had to ask myself why I had avoided talking to them hmm. about racial difference, about race, big capital R. I had friends who were gently pushing and I think even confused, why haven't you had the talk? You know, we talk about the talk, why haven't you had that with the girls yet? And of course, I felt defensive about it. <sighs> and i i didn't really have words for it until they gave me those words and I, re- I realized that for me coming into a sense of who i was as a black subject in the world was about lack and a kind of poverty of choices and opportunities mm-hmm. i mean as much as you know we were part of the whole project of desegregation and kind of you know the the kind of Bertie Washington, you know, <laughs>
1: moving up, upwards, driving. He's a climb
2: up. And the Du Boisian, you know, you reach behind. And my parents were really, you know, they believed in that passionately, that idea. But still, you know, we lived in a white world. And I felt fear, I think more from my mother than from my father. You know, he was from the Caribbean. So it's just a different experience being the subject of the crown, as he called himself, <laughs> right? you know, than the reality of American race relations. So I realized if that, that was why I had avoided it because race was became a part of my life through the experience of trauma, and not trauma necessarily that I well not, but it was almost that epigenetic kind of experience. You know, I didn't live in the Jim Crow South, but my mother's stories that was so close to her, it was so allied with her Amen. that the stories became mine, and the experience became mine, and maybe it was just the way we kids need to. We need to be close to our parents, we'll even take on that
1: pain. So there was a longer way of having this talk. You're saying you learned yeah. what race is. Right, exactly. That is an it's sort of long term experience structures people's lives. And then the sentence shifts to and okay. color is beauty. Yeah. yeah. But race is about color, right? So this is why I was because it's is sort it? of that's what I'm yeah. trying to figure out. I mean this is what <laughs> Nella Larson is trying to figure <laughs> exactly. out, right? She writes a book and I thought what's so imo- important about passing when yeah. I read this in college. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm from Europe. I didn't really, I had to learn all these things in a way. And I had learned, Du Bois said, you know, the question of the 20th century is the color line. Then she writes a novel that sort of sits on the color line, but somehow deepens it and deepens it and deepens it. And so so the link between race and color is what that book is about, Mm -hmm. but also what your book is about.
2: That's right. You know, I think, yeah, I love it. I love you say, you know, kind of deepening it by testing it. You know, by testing it and teasing it. Right. By disobeying, you know, the kind of public rules around racial identity. That's how we come to understand racial identity.
1: Even it seemed to me almost disobeying a lot of things, disobeying also Du Bois who said this is the question of the 20th century. And she says, well, I'm going to give you a book where some people won't accept that this is their, their destiny. This is their question. This is their fate. They live in the color line and they disappear into it. They don't yeah. step over it or something like but that? Right. right?
2: But they have a right to... You know, the thing I love about Claire and I think Claire, you know, has gotten such a bad rap, you know...
1: So Claire Kendry is the character So tell us who she is in this book. Okay, it's, right.
2: So then we have the, you know, the characters who kind of work as bookends. Maybe Claire Kendry who presents as white and then Irene Redfield who also presents as white. So they're obviously a lot of stuff going on the family tree. We don't know about Irene, but we can read Irene's body, which is Mm -hmm. a white-looking body, because of a history of miscegenation. And we know about what's at the root of her skin color, but we know Claire more directly is, you know, I think her grandparent was black. Um, So she is, you know, that far removed. Not the centuries in County Collins' poem, Heritage, but you know, but a couple of generations, right. and yet... And the
1: centuries is the preface to one, three centuries, and then what is Africa right. to me? Sort what of is he... Africa to me? And so he's in the 1920s saying, Connie Collins saying, what is Africa to me? Is this mm-hmm. supposed to structure my identity? That's right. A continent I haven't set foot on? Mm-hmm. And so there's this tension to find an identity when the identity is already blocked by the construction of race. That's right. But has to be reopened.
2: I mean, how much experience, you know qualifies you you know what are the prongs of experience do you have to lay claim to to lay claim to blackness you know and to what degree can you just elect that which is what happens you know, in some ways with Claire I mean she lives in a white world very successfully according to very American standards you know she has everything she wants and she's a lady of leisure you know she doesn't work and but she longs for something and the thing she longs for, she calls blackness. Mm. And I think that's what I've always found her appealing as a character because she is, you know, in search of pleasure. And that pleasure for her is about racial identity. But she says, you know, I, I long to be around Negroes. I want to hear them laugh, you know. And there's something so liberating about that, about just the simple, again, pleasure of being in the company of black people. And that laughter, you know, as Langston Hughes, you know, laughing to keep from crying, that laughter was saturated with a lot of different things you know right. and then there's irene who is a race woman in the book who you know is is living as a black woman and feels a kind of superiority
1: and explained to me what a race woman is the so race it's, woman is 1919 yeah, today okay. and that, this is 1929 or so what are the race <laughs> men and race women a race
2: person is someone who <laughs> capital r race you know and that is your calling card and you are soberly concerned with race uplift the linear project of race uplift right and you were part of the, a talented tenth in the Du Boisian idea that, you know, the elite of both, you know, putting that in quotation marks, <laughs> you know, both races, black and white, it's the duty, it's about duty, being a race person. Race, race yeah. It's our duty to lift up those behind, you know, the unwashed masses.
1: Right. And it's consciously black, sort of, so taking on an identity that this is Jim Crow era, this is formalized segregation, this is, you talk about this in the introduction to one of the, Current editions on passings. This is from Plessy right. separate but equal. So this institutionalized inequality. Mm-hmm. But then a race woman says, I will take on my identity, help everybody in my race yeah. to achieve presumably equality, right? That's behind yes. this.
2: That's the idea, but it's very, you know, class based. Yeah. And I would say that those I mean, certainly as a race person is, you know, represented in Irene Redfield in the character in passing, does she have any intention of really imagining a democratic black collective because she, in her own home, she has, you know, servants. Uh, Yes. Zulina and Sadie, I think.
1: Mahogany colored. Mahogany
2: colored, right? So even then, like the color difference is important, you know, So it's, and she doesn't talk to them.
1: And it's pointed out that Claire Kendry, her husband, said she would never tolerate a black servant in her home for other reasons probably. Well, that's why. The first thing of the book is this kind of encounter. There's a letter. It's a very in some ways a very formal book, a very mannered book. I actually think it sort of reproduces the way of thinking of Irene Redfield to be proper, to speak well, to write the most beautiful prose. Mm-hmm. There's something about that. She has this letter on her hand, this very beautiful, gorgeous letter on violet paper. And then the second scene, I think, is one of the most memorable scenes. When I read the scene, I have this scene in my head when they're at the top of the Drayton Hotel. Mm-hmm. It's a hot August day in Chicago. Mm-hmm. She sinks into this chair, has a little tea. She says, finally, I can breathe. It's stifling hot. And then she meets this person from her past, mm-hmm. which isn't just that then Claire Kendry's past becomes a problem, but... Irene Redfield is looking at her life mm-hmm. which is actually surprising so I, at first the encounter is to me such a great encounter in a novel that you're just with them yes, for this long afternoon
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> I love how you said you can see it because it is so it's cinematic yeah. and Claire is to be seen you know she is a spectacle she is there to be experienced and she's a person you're sitting at the top of the hotel and you're <laughs> tired and you're a little sweaty and you're Irene and You're thinking about powdering your face and how you look, and it's everything, make sure everything's all together. And in comes Claire, you know, trailing (laughs) all of these exotic flowers and her laugh, you know, the tinkle of her, which is, and it's disturbing because there's an erratic power. And you're Irene, and, you know, you don't want to talk about sex at all, not even, you know, with your children. And in comes the embodiment of this really restless. Eroticism that is impossible to contain, which of course is really what happens in the rest of the
1: book. And as you said, it's to be seen. She's a spectacle. It's about visibility. Yes. When the book is about who looks white and who looks black, mm-hmm. according to people who are theirs, yeah. which is amazing and disturbing idea that American society people constantly look at each other and say, where do you belong? Who are you? Very and they had, there's a party scene in the middle of the book where they're sort of comparing this the Van Vecten character, this writer, mm-hmm. who you've written about quite mm-hmm. a lot, who's a white man who comes up to Harlem to the parties and then the host says, what do you think she is? What do you think she is? What do you think he is? Yeah. <laughs> but this idea of categorizing people, mm-hmm. so to go back to the quote in your book where you're saying racist trauma, this kind of categorization of training people teaching people who belongs where mm-hmm. by sight in your book when you said so races, trauma, color is trauma colors beauty what shifted when you talk to your children and said race is something you have to learn mm-hmm. this is this weird structure yeah this coding system these categories but... you
2: know it's funny you know so i never actually had that talk with my daughters <laughs> I never had the talk. Well, they can I, listen to the podcast right. now, right? I mean, I wrote a book instead. <laughs> yes, they read the book, you know? yes. <laughs> and so I said last night, you know, I love, I feel like, you know, that Emily Dickinson, you know, that, that poetic directive, tell all of the truth, but tell it slant. That's nice. It really helps guide me as a writer and probably as a person. I mean, I'd rather mm-hmm. tell a story mm-hmm. and say, take a, from this what you will. And mm-hmm. I, even with my children, so better or worse, I mean, they are watching the news with us. They are listening. Mm-hmm. You know, my husband and I talk about it all the time, mm-hmm. what's mm-hmm. happening. And, you know, the world is going to be what they make of it. It's not in my nature, I think. I mean, I love to lecture. You know, mm-hmm. I love the classroom and mm-hmm. I love to tell mm-hmm. people stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think when it comes to these issues, I can't pretend to have a real answer. Right. And I know when I was their age, I didn't want to be defined and, and captured, captured, right, by— Interesting, yeah. um, —dominated by the history of American racism— it was just, it hurt my spirit to think that that would be all to my life. So I rebelled, and I'm still, you know, as I get older, still figuring out the balance. And certainly with my daughters, you know, what is the balance between saying, you know, I'll tell you what, what happened is a certain presidential election, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then there was just nowhere to hide, and no time to hide. And my daughters had to process that, and I always think of that in some ways I still as the end of childhood, when we woke mm. up that fateful morning and we had to tell them who the president was and what that meant about what people prioritize you know
1: that it brings out something that maybe hadn't been as visible or yes it... yes
2: exactly and so there was you know it just had to for myself as a parent say let's get serious now we've been I mean right. so they did and they have thought about you know they see racism get played out on a, and I mean it always is there but now through the lens of this historical moment. Right. They're all putting it together. And you know, I tell you, I miss that. I miss, I, I mean, we all miss baby our kids like babyhoods, but I, I miss the, I miss the moments before the cynicism. You know.
1: Which is interesting. It's kind of a destruction of a kind of, and it's not an innocence, a destruction of more of what you said, the spirit. Yeah. It's, you said you rebelled because it's an assault on your spirit mm-hmm. to be constrained. It's not, you lose an innocence, now you know how the world works. You say, no, it actually, traps you in some structure that's not livable. Mm-hmm. So to go back and forth, it's kind of interesting. So in passing, so Claire Kendry is this gorgeous person, mm-hmm. wants to be seen all the time. And it really troubles Irene because she says, how can she be so out there? Shouldn't she just be a little bit more cautious because she's hiding something and it's very dangerous she says she's always at the edge of the abyss. Mm-hmm. So I wonder whether Claire Kendry, in a way, is a character also just rebels against this confinement that just crushes her spirit, but at the same time it could look like it's just opportunistic. she just wanted to be to go to the other side of the tracks, have money, be rich yeah. so.
2: and if we celebrate you know I love whenever you hear stories I we saw my students like so and so became rich and famous, didn't even finish the eighth grade. I mean it says so much about again our culture and what we value and what we think of as a success. So and if that's a kind of if that's applauded for men, right? I'm thinking, you know, whatever, Bill Gates, right? Then what about a woman? You know, so what about Claire? And so if we applaud a man for, you know, taking the world by the horns and making that money and, you know, playing the game well, what about when it becomes a game that is gendered in a different way? So isn't Claire also doing this? and playing and gaming the system. So what I think, not only race, but Irene resents and is troubled and is maybe excited, and, and all the implications of that word, by the fact that Claire is defying gender norms as well. You know, she doesn't wear like a sober gray suit to right. lunch, and she laughs out loud, and she's wearing lipstick, and she's not trying to hide her body. And right. she's also, beyond that, she's not trying to hide whatever that thing is, whatever, that ineffable thing is that makes her... <laughs> Really sexy. She's not trying to contain it and mm-hmm. put it in a corset, mm-hmm. and but she's also not completely. I mean, she's she's composed, right? You know, Claire is. She's very aware. She knows how to use that charm, and she loves using that charm. And it is dangerous, right? That's the kind of thing for a woman,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know. I mean, we all know as women when we're in danger when our we are being expressive in a way that is threatening to men. And we all learn to negotiate it. And how can we be free? How can we say, I don't care. I'm going to be myself regardless at what cost.
1: But it's an interesting observation that Claire Kendry, so the book's written in 1929. So she's in some ways aware of her looks, aware of her effect on men and on women. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear that Irene Redfield is just totally excited by her and taken with her. And she sort of basically is sort of infatuated and fascinated. Mm-hmm. And she says, could I be like this myself, maybe? Mm-hmm. What would this mean? Or what if I was close to this person? And she keeps on being won over. Mm-hmm. She keeps on saying this is just not acceptable. And then she looks at Claire and she's just seduced by the beauty and the charm and the grace and the attractiveness. Mm-hmm. But that she's using these qualities as a woman in 1929 is just, she's not just going to professional school, which could be another aspiration, or working for a charity, which is what Irene Redfield does. She stays kind of in the lane of what women are supposed to do, and Claire Henry leaves all of those, mm-hmm. right? The first short chapter of the book tells us a little bit about her background, the scene when she's sitting on the couch making a dress for her Sunday school picnic and what her father does. What do you think the book tries to tell us there in terms of what the options are for women and for mm-hmm. girls at this point? That's a
2: really important scene, too, as we're talking. You know, thinking She's a little girl. She's sitting on her couch. It's a shabby couch,
1: and she's, So they're poor in a poor neighborhood. She's sewing a dress. She's
2: sewing a dress. She's putting taking scraps together. Yeah. To sew a dress. There's no mother mentioned, which I think is very interesting because so much of literature on passing has to do with the denial of the black mother, mm-hmm. and that is the indication that that soul is really lost. If you can walk by your mother on a street and not acknowledge her,
1: which is the end of *Imitation of Life* (1959) exactly. movie Lana Turner, which is yeah. heartbreaking. So there's no mother already in the book, even. No. As, as if Claire denies her so much that even Nella Larson doesn't put her in the book. She or does, maybe or that, she's not there, maybe.
2: Well, maybe that's why we have to ask, you know, is that, because if if our fathers give us our public identities, right, our surnames and, you mm. know, property, and, then our mothers are the bearers of culture. You know, mm. that's how it often plays out. I'm thinking about a lot of 19th century literature about uh, reconstruction era literature, about what mm. it means to remember put the black family back together and we need to find our mothers to be whole again. Mm -hmm. So if we ask ourselves what happened to Claire that she doesn't care or that she has no affiliation, she doesn't seem, you know, to be, you know, what was her loyalty really? Well, maybe it disappeared with her mother and maybe that's why she has no moral code because there was no mother there. So that makes her dangerous already. I mean, she's already the product of trauma. And so... I know, as someone who has survived, you know, some trauma, that it just makes you aware of the world in a different way. You know, you no longer live in the same sphere as other people who, you know, you know how the body can tear, in my case, and, you know, you can survive it. So it's it's not that you're fearless, but it does, there's a new bottom.
1: I mean, it's interesting when in your book you write about this, this kind of traumatic experience you've had, and then you talk about how sometimes it kind of came to you and you would Sort of stand at the at the sidewalk and not cross the street or yeah. cross the street and be aware of what could happen mm-hmm. so how the body can be that's right. attacked that's right so it's a greater knowledge I think but, so,
2: but I think you know okay, so little girl Claire, yeah, who is sitting on the couch and her father is raging and he's drunk and he's raging, and so there's chaos, and there's nothing there's no other person in the room to protect her from this man. And he just keeps lunging at her and she's sitting defiantly and stitching and she's going to create something and make art out of the scraps, make something beautiful and loud. It's for her and her future that she, I mean, a little girl. So that, I mean, can you imagine something scarier? And to be that, to put your chin out as your own father, your only parent, and you have nothing. Like there's just the other family, they don't want anything to do with you because you are colored. And so that is a person to be afraid of because that is a person who is going to get hers and is going to know the world at whatever cost because there's there's no one, he's accountable to no one else.
1: But this is really interesting. So the kind of dissociation of this little girl on the couch who is, and we are witness in the scene, we're in this living room with her. Mm-hmm. So the novel gives us a perspective that no sociology can really give us because mm-hmm. you, you can't ask her, she's traumatized. You can't ask the father, he's a drunk abuser. There's no one there. So, the loneliness of this experience, the novel gives us an entry to, and then what you're saying, this trauma allows her to become somebody who can survive in the world where she feels just there's no one going to take care of me. That's right. There's no mother, there's nobody. The family rejects her. She has to live with these relatives who reject her because she's, mm-hmm. you know, mixed race or a black girl. So, in some ways, we are given. A kind of window into someone who really doesn't share her solitude, you can't, mm-hmm. but then she does with Irene Redfield. I think this is what the book draws you, and in, in a way, to have awareness of a character who otherwise really is not part of she has no real community, and then we are sort of taken in like Irene Redfield is taken in by this yeah. person because yeah. she's also really intriguing because she knows something about the world that other people probably deny.
2: yeah, and also you can't trust her, like she's the kind of person you know she'll make you weep talking about her own loneliness and saying it, you know, with so much humility and this vulnerability. But then she looks at you with this little smile. She knows (laughs) she's gotten in. And so you just don't know where you stand with her all the time. And so when we use the word excite, you know, she excites Irene. I think there's an obviously erotic charge. But she also excites her anger because, you know, she just won't obey. You cannot get a read on her, you know, obviously in her body, but also just emotionally. Who is... She, mm-hmm. And what does she need? What does she want? I mean, there's no, you know, there's n- nothing to track here. And um, she
1: says at some point, mm-hmm. I will take what I want. Right. And Irene is totally fascinated, but it's as if someone is giving you a direct threat. says, I will take whatever I want, and you should not trust me at all because I have no morals. <laughs> and Irene looks at her and thinks, this is not even possible. Mm-hmm. The problem, I think, is that Irene's sense of morality keeps her also locked in some other patterns with her husband in her culture mm-hmm. and she says at some point she's very defensive she says i never passed except to maybe get a theater ticket or to not wait in line or something but never passed for social advantage mm-hmm. and this is a strange thing that they're crossing the lines what's acceptable what's not acceptable mm-hmm. because whose morality is it really and who is getting the benefit of this morality so, for a woman, for a black woman in 1920s, Claire Henry said, why would I buy into any of these? Look, as a child already, didn't work for me.
2: You know, one major difference is that Irene really thinks that, you know, she's just so conscious of herself and every move she makes. She imagines that even the, you know, kind of the most ordinary choices she's making are profound, you know, and... And have, I think and have we all like to meaning. think that, Ma- and maybe we do. <laughs> I don't. Know. And Claire doesn't. Claire knows better, <laughs> right? She says it's just the life.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: it's just life,
1: and I'm going to live this one, and not it's not short, someone.
2: And it's small, you know, relatively speaking. And so, I'm going to do what I want to do. And so that's, I think, what's liberating in some ways about the character.
1: I like the fact that actually you so <laughs> you're like Claire Kendry, because the book really. Sets up these two characters in this locked in this kind of Mm -hmm. fascination. They share the background, and then they chart this path. Mm -hmm. In some ways, the fact that you seem to like Claire (laughs) Henry—like—is this the path for? Is this a path forward? One of many, (laughs) right? Yeah, (laughs) I don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, it's again, what do we value? How do we want to live? And you know, Claire lived courageously. I think that objectively, that is true. Whether or not we approve. And think that there was not enough of a moral component. She definitely was not a coward, and I think that right. we might be able to call Irene, in some ways, a coward, because she is living a life that is just—it's a name only. You know, we know that she, marriage is, you know, her marriage is—you know—husband can't stand her, and her children—we don't even know them; they're just sort of invisible. <laughs> the there. boys, right? The boys, you know, and
1: Brian and Ted, yeah. Right. <laughs>
2: you know, so she's living a, a life that looks good, and that's all she's satisfied with. And that, is that living? Is that living? Is that, what, is that what life is for? It's
1: interesting. I found Claire Kendry so disorienting and mm-hmm. fascinating, and I kind of thought, well, maybe it's better. Irene has this nice husband and the kids, and she knows what she's going to, and Claire sort of goes wherever she wants to go. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene when you said it's a matter also, Claire has courage. There's a scene when Irene meets Claire's husband for the first time. Mm-hmm. Another really cinematic scene really dramatic they're sitting around having tea or something and irene wants to leave wants to leave and finally the husband walks in and then she does not confront him when he was, he's a complete racist mm-hmm. and says these terrible things and she's silent yeah. she actually laughs a lot for too long and then she's silent yeah. can you say something about this what is she negotiating there because in some ways i think you leave the scene thinking could she have said anything, and why wouldn't she say anything? And the whole book ultimately becomes about would a woman speak out, or would a woman choose to remain silent?
2: That's Exactly right. Yeah, I mean, what do we want her? So yeah, that horrible. And which it would have again a perfect. You say the the novel of manners. So they're having this tea, and it's all very elegant. And then comes this, you know, this gust of male bravado and. And Irene, you know, she doesn't speak. Of, and do we want her to? Because every time Jack comes into the room, I'm thinking, what is going to pop off now? I mean, he's not an innocent figure. He's not a, a nice person. So do we want Irene? I mean, there's a physical threat he represents. He's not a small person. We know that he's imposing mm-hmm. as a presence. And so we know what he carries in his body. Mm-hmm. And we know, because we see it now being played all the time, what mm-hmm. happens if you excite white male rage mm-hmm. i mean there mm-hmm. are some dire consequences to that right so we know that he embodies that and represents that
1: and this is also clear in the book this is 1920s mm-hmm. at some point the husband brings up a lynching at the breakfast table and she's outraged and she said don't mm-hmm. talk about this in front of the children right now so we know the context is real physical right threats That's yes
2: right. so he does so what would happen if she were to say well i mean the whole thing would crumble and she would put her friend at physical risk i mean because we I don't think it's a too far afield to imagine that Jack would become homicidal right. finding out he's married to a black woman. Right. So, but she does sit and she complies. But the thing that bothers me in that scene is that she says, I can imagine other circumstances, you know, I would really like him.
1: It's a very strange sentence. Can you
2: imagine saying that? He's about-
1: a total, he doesn't, he even says like, oh, you get me wrong. I don't not mm-hmm. like, in this, in the context, and the language of this book, I don't just not like Negroes. I hate them. Right. I hate so, them. I hate and then them. she says, in another circumstance, I would have liked this yeah. man. And. What would be those other circumstances? I actually thought, is this something that I really need to, to think, what is her position in the world, and what was normal and accepted? And what was tolerable? Well, I think, how could she say that? And she may respond to me out of the depth of this book, say, what do you think I was dealing with every single day? Every single white person I dealt with had these thoughts. So, yes, I could have had a mm-hmm. genteel interaction.
2: But I guess then I would say to Irene, well, again, you are <laughs> someone who thought about every choice you you really were so self serious. Why is this okay? You know, you right made now. a choice to be to be silent. But again, I think we do ask too much of her if we want her to be John Brown in that moment. <laughs> right. I mean it's just not Irene. It's gonna happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's that sin of omission. Mm-hmm. You know, where mm-hmm. she just doesn't and then of course what happens in the book, the pivotal moment is her she's the cause of it again when she does not speak. And she, but she knows just the way she, her body is arranged, you know, she's touching a, a brown skinned woman. She knows that What that's going
1: to mean. Right. So she knows actually that in this other pivotal scene, which she doesn't want to talk about really, and she doesn't share with Claire and her Mm -hmm. husband, which would change all of their relationships. She doesn't say anything, but enough is communicated. Everything is communicated. Because she's with a friend who is darker, and then she's seen in public, not not hiding. She's not passing at all. She's just walking down the street Mm -hmm. so that she doesn't speak, but... Her body speaks in a way. Well, uh, linked, or, their arms are linked. Their arms are linked, right? Yeah. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. and so she and Jack exchange looks, you know, and so everything is then revealed.
1: there's a moment in this book she talks about passing to her husband and they kind of process a lot. Actually, that's why I thought their marriage isn't as bad as maybe me in my And she says to the husband, it's funny about passing. We disapprove of it and at the same time condone it. It excites our contempt and yet we rather admire it. We shy away from it with an odd kind of revulsion, but we protect it. Mm -hmm. So I think there's so many things in this. So we condone it, we admire it, we protect it. Mm Because we're also protecting one of our own. Yeah. So this is loyalty to Claire Kenry, and she keeps on thinking, why am I loyal to this person who is mm. slowly wrecking my life? That's right. But I'm fascinated by her, and I want to protect her because I cannot give up on her because mm. she belongs to me. That's right. So this loyalty is a really interesting one between women and between two black women, sort of to yeah. say, do I have a greater loyalty here to her? Mm -hmm. than this person who is becoming a threat Mm -hmm. to my life.
2: It reminds me, Elizabeth Alexander wrote a poem called Race. And I forget what good it's in, but she talked about, you know, a family. And there were the kind of elders in the family that kept a secret about a great, great uncle who married a white woman and lived in the Northwest, I think, who did not know he was black. And he would come to his family, you know, on holidays. We'd make up whatever excuse. And and the family kept the secret, I think, through generations that, you know. And mm-hmm. so what is that? I read Bliss Broyard's book about her father. And mm-hmm. that seemed to be, I mean, there are a lot of interesting parallels in how a black community, he, he was never not known as black among black people, Anatole right. Boyard. But people kept that secret for
1: him. So Boyard was their Times book critic. And then Henry Louis Gates wrote an essay about him, a very famous essay, right. where he said, it's not on us. Mm-hmm. It's not on us to judge. Right. And he says, this is someone's life. Mm-hmm. As you said earlier, it's not just a life. It's one life among many. It's his choice mm-hmm. for us to now step in and say he should have. He mm-hmm. should have done this and that. I said, this is his life. That's
2: right. Yeah, so his daughter Bliss wrote this enormous book that yeah. was really getting into that very deeply. I often think about someone like Rachel Dolezal and I you know, think, well, how do we even... Do we talk about these things in the same conversation? But again, what is identity? Is it a choice? Are we? What are we responsible to? How do we enact our identities in a way that is accountable or to a larger, a greater idea, a greater community? Mm-hmm. I mean, is that what we are called to do?
1: This book still in the 20s, there's still this kind of pseudoscience in the background. Mm-hmm. So you talk about the Plessy case, and so it's 1897. Six- Six, yeah, so it's it establishes a separate body. So Plessy could pass for a white person, goes into a first-class train compartment, alerts the press to force a suit. One out of nine justices says this is absurd, that we're going to actually now institutionalize racism based on some pseudoscientific concepts. And the court does that then for a good 50 years until slowly Brown versus Board of Education will change That's a couple of things. I had a conversation with Paulette Caldwell And NYU law professor, who's one of the architects of critical race theory, and she said, Oh no, no, Uli, it's not Plessy. It's not it's Dred Scott 1856 that we're fighting, Mm -hmm. which denies blacks of all citizenship privileges. She said, Plessy is just an instance of that. We're still fighting against Dred Scott. Mm -hmm. And I actually was sort of taken aback. Mm -hmm. And she said, Plessy is only the formalization on some level, but Dred Scott to deny black Americans the right to be citizens this is what this is about mm-hmm. so the book Passing is about this discussion of what's black what's not black your question right now what are we loyal to what's Rachel Donazel doing claiming some affinity right. with a culture that she really yeah. presumably has no business being part of right? yeah.
2: at the same time she's a mother <laughs> to black sons and someone said that to me once because we were kind of puzzling over the <laughs> Rachel Dolezal mystery and someone said but she has black children and let's not forget that that can be that, that is really maybe what's propelling you know,
1: I think it's really hard to think about these things carefully from what we've seen recently mm-hmm. in Congress and mm-hmm. what we've heard that someone says I have, you know, nephews and nieces yeah, or something. It's weird legitimation moments as if that legitimates other behavior because right. it's supposed to compensate suddenly. If I have a black nephew, then I can say all these horrible things on the other side. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> but you know what? I believe in love and family. And these things can get inside and change us and transform us. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a, a lot of things are possible when you choose to merge your life with someone else whose life does not look like yours. And it can change you. It can calcify you in ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. And you're right, make you feel that you're exempt from X, Y, and Z. You know, my daughters love to say, my husband's Italian-American. And they love to say, well, you know, among many things they have said, they were saying, "Well, mommy, you're the only person in the family who's not Italian," and why they say that is because, you know, they are Ethiopians, and there's a huge Italian presence right. in Ethiopia, of course. But they also are, in some ways, really see themselves as affiliated with him primarily, and and so what does that mean for them? Well, they're close to their his parents. They're close to so his
1: their grandchildren I mean, right? of Italian yes, Americans, how, right?
2: That's how they, you know. So they and I, hmm. I don't. I mean, we all say it with a little smile. I mean, they're you know they're in the world and they're learning but they're also deciding who they are and why can't they decide that's completely right. who they are right. again always at what cost and if that troubles us then we have to really look at ourselves and say well what what is that upsetting right. how is it defying my ideas about who is who you know
1: and that's probably an interesting question to say what is it upsetting what ideas do I have and hold dear that suddenly someone is challenging so if you're a girl saying we're Italian and then mm-hmm. someone says you're not really Italian it's like what yeah. notion are they holding on to that's right that also then other people from Italy would say you're not Italian exactly. you grew up in Massachusetts so you're as Italian Absolutely. as the guy from New York so all of this is going on it's but that's then not charged with the idea of race in America, this, this discussion can be had of all of I mean, I meet people all the time who say I'm German and I've met mm-hmm. them, I've lived here for 35 years and I say, that's wonderful. I've learned to say, that's fantastic, that's wonderful. Yes, because my ancestors came to Minnesota uh-huh. in the 1890s and I'm like, that's great. They've, that's great. I mean, you know, that's German, I guess. You know, I have no idea. Like, And in some ways, but if I say, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a New Yorker. People look at me and say, well, yeah, but where are you really from? So it's kind of interesting because I have an accent. So it's all these things, but some are just charged and some are not.
2: And some are, exactly some are neutral. Some
1: are, neutral. Some some are we don't care about and some we really care about. So I think mm-hmm. Nella Larson put her book in this space where we really care about it. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other thing she's writing in the middle of the Harlem Renaissance, Du Bois reviewed the book and people liked the book. She got a lot of acclaim. She
2: wanted actually to get more trouble. She, she, she was did disappointed that <laughs> yes. people weren't. Can you talk popular.
1: a little bit about this? She knew she really wanted to sort of yeah. ignite a bit of a scandal there, the she way did. Van Veckten had done right? That's right. right. She yes.
2: wanted to capitalize. I mean, yeah. you want to be read as a writer. And I think she was worried that her book would be dismissed as this sort of, you know, tidy little tale. I mean, what she's doing is, you know, pretty alarming in this book. Yeah. I mean, she's in quicksand, you know, they're packaged together and, and these books are very much about sex. Mm -hmm. and about desire and Mm -hmm. how women manage it and, you know, how it's separate from motherhood and how can you be whole as a woman. I mean, that's pretty radical. But I want to say something about Plessy that always interests me. Plessy had to tell people that he was black. I mean, you know, the whole thing would have (laughs) fallen apart if, you know, you said he had to alert the presses. So what does that say then about identity? And if you were to ask, you know, Homer Plessy, well, what is it that makes you black? He would, of course, point to this ancestor, and he would talk about American racism, but he could have been Claire and wandered off into the world. So what keeps you black? What keeps you in that black place? Family. So again, if you are Claire, you have no family.
1: Right, right. Then... Interesting, she doesn't have her immediate family, and you said there's this kind of yearning. She wants to be with black people. She wants to laugh with them. She wants to dance. She wants to go to the party. She actually goes to the parties mm-hmm. at great risk to everybody, basically. But there's sort of this poignancy of loss. So passing is, so in some ways, I think passing, and this book really was one of the books. You know, Langston Hughes had a little story, so there's a kind of, there's a discussion around this here, but that, yeah, oh, you want to be part of mainstream society for gain. Mm-hmm. And what's not there is the deep loss in that to say you're giving up on something which I think is really an important part of this book that it allows you to see it from both sides and it's not Mm -hmm. simple to say well Claire that's selfish she had nowhere to go back to in a way but at the same time she felt she wanted to recognize this loss and I think this is really why Nella Larson's book is sort of not a sociological study because you can say we can measure how many people and there's always so many people did this okay Mm -hmm. How many things were lost? How many people could not say, greet their mothers in the street? Mm-hmm. And this, I think, is so poignant. Why I think also the structure, what you said, is kind of a novel of manners. Mm-hmm. Why it works so well? Because it's a sentimental book. It is. Yeah. But the sentiments are so devastating. Mm-hmm. and The book is so preoccupied with sort of what was she thinking? What was she feeling? Mm-hmm. But not in a way to say this is not important. This is actually how society makes you behave or feel.
2: Right. Well, you know, the thing is, Claire comes back and, and aren't you allowed to come back? Aren't you allowed to change your mind and say, well, I went down that path for a while and it really didn't work out and now I want to be black again. <laughs> you know, and you would ask, I mean, the way money is working in the book too. Right. Because you said gain and that sort of got me on this whole yeah. dreamscape because, you know, there's a lot to be gained from being a race leader. You know, there's a lot to be gained in the kind of cultural economy. If blackness is, I mean, even now, if blackness is sort of held up as this, you know, kind of morally pure category and this kind of people who have suffered and who are the moral betters. But this you know? is
1: the couple people in the Harlem Renaissance, right? Nella Larson's interesting. She stood over there for a moment. Yeah. I mean, I had a conversation last week with Deborah Plant on Zora Neale Hurston, who was born in the same year as Nella Larson, although mm-hmm. we don't really know this publicly, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was born 10 years later. But so there's gain to be had if you speak on behalf of the race and it works in the public discussion. Mm -hmm. But I think what you said earlier, that this is about female sexuality. This is about women kind of claiming their own space. Mm -hmm. It's also a troublesome aspect.
2: Yeah, there is. I mean, what do we value? What do you value as a culture, as a community? Is it okay to be black and to, again, game the system? Is it okay to do that? Can you still be black Mm -hmm. and be a capitalist and the game is if the rules are success by any means necessary and I'm going to be a titan of industries and it means I have to crush people because everything else is like scary, right. like socialism or something, you know? I mean, that's how I think in this country we, <laughs> you know, right. people talk in ridiculous ways. But if that is the choice, then Claire is a true American subject. Mm-hmm. And my friend Kathy Pfeiffer, mm-hmm. he wrote a book about passing an in American individualism. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. a scary question to ask. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that is a quintessential American choice. Right? We mm. believe, and we believe in self-invention. Mm. We believe in mm-hmm. happiness. And mm-hmm. but you know, the question is, what is your individual happiness worth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on this earth when mm-hmm. people are suffering? What is happiness? Mm-hmm. You know, how does it contribute to what we're going for? And maybe there are people, you know, who say my happiness is my goal in life, and other people say, well, that is actually really tertiary, yeah. maybe at best.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. But that's interesting that Claire becomes this kind of question for us and she wants to claim her happiness and it's hard to be grudging to anybody say, well, your your definition because what am I supposed to oppose my morality and say you're supposed to work for some other cause? Mm-hmm. But you're saying, well, this is the quintessential American mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. denied to a black woman in 1929. Very it's kind true. of interesting. So like, you can invent yourself in America. You come here, you're penniless, you make up a story mm-hmm. and America is... A country filled with stories of con men tell you a good story. Mm -hmm. This is who I am. Mm -hmm. This is my name. And then the fact that Nella Larson puts race in the middle of this and says, well, Mm -hmm. some people can even overcome this thing, which, as you wrote in the introduction, the Supreme Court institutionalized, enshrined as a horrible thing, Mm -hmm. like our great... Valiant Court enshrined this horrible thing for nearly a century. Basically, and Ella Larson says, "Well, you can even escape this. Mm-hmm. What would that mean? Right. What does it mean to be a real American?"
2: But the, you know, the thing is, here we are talking about these care and Claire. But what if Claire were in here? Mm-hmm. You know, would we like Claire? You know, do we like and approve, or do we allow for a Claire Kendry in theory only?
1: I mean, I think what's amazing is that we are living in a cultural moment where we have discussions like this all the time. Mm -hmm. So we have discussions about people who are, you know, in my and your kid's generation who have much more fluid conceptions of identity, Mm -hmm. but they come into a room, and we want to know, so what are you? Mm -hmm. So what are you? So are you a man? Are you a woman? Are you gay? Are you straight? Are you black? Are you white? Are you Indian? Are you Pakistani? Are you British? Are you black from the West Indies? Are you from the Bronx? It's all these categories. And in some ways, the kids look at us and say, none of these questions are relevant. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make up myself today, and in a week, I'm going to be different. <laughs> so she's actually, I think, posing a question that you I think you're right. We would probably ask her the wrong questions again.
2: So what is the right question? You know, I think I mean, we have a very limited vocabulary around race in this country. And I, you know, write about this in the book about my cousins from Trinidad who race means something completely different. Mm -hmm. It just does not translate. It does not travel. And so my cousins who were here and educated in this country, they felt so confined. A lot of them, not all of them. But it was something to to try to figure out. Like my daughters, you know, what is this race thing, everyone? It's... The, you know, things that are unspoken, things that are uninterrogated, and, you know, they had a strong sense of a national identity. And I know for two of my cousins, I mean, it just was so valuable. And I went over to Trinidad, and I couldn't help myself, because I'm an American. I couldn't help myself, and I would say, are is you that person, <laughs> right. you know, because I was intrigued by the blend. And my cousin would say, they're Trinidadian. Right. And that was just like, you know, that's at the end of discussion. We have a national identity. Wow. And, of course, that's another narrative, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's still a caste system and all these but things. it's a
1: narrative. But actually, it's a construction. It's mm-hmm. a powerful mythology. It's, it's not a, I don't even know what, it's not a factual scientific yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. These categories change. So no, they you change. Said, I guess in the 20s, they took the category of what we could call mixed race or mulatto off the census. They now put it back on. They're going to take mm-hmm. it back off. They don't allow people to be this way, mm-hmm. which is really weird because people are this way. That's right. <laughs> so they deny them.
2: Mm-hmm. I had a student who uh, was Swedish and Ghanaian, and she was, you know, light skinned, and I think she had, you know, kind of curly blondish brown hair, and had grown up in Sweden with her mother, and so lived in Sweden. And when she came to this country, she said, that, "I learned quickly. The only box I couldn't check was white." Interesting. And it was very confusing to her because she grew up in Sweden with her white Swedish mother, again, the mother to whom she was very identified. And so it was really, I mean, the box Mm -hmm. can have a profound psychic impact on suddenly, am I not what I thought I was? Am I not allowed to live in the in-between? I have to check this box. And so a box is not just a box, you know, and so it unleashes Mm -hmm. or enables, I think, actually us to experience ourselves in different ways.
1: And if someone like Claire Henry says, none of the boxes work, I'm going to invent my own narrative, mm-hmm. write my own story, not rewrite it, not falsify it. You don't even know my story because mm-hmm. only I can know it. That's right. kind of a scandal. It is a scandal. It's also, I think, just disorienting because mm-hmm. we do have all these narratives and boxes in our heads that we use for other people mostly. And then I think the book mm-hmm. is so interesting because it takes place largely in black society, which as we know, I remember vividly when Toni Morrison was asked about that over and over and over again over the last 40 years. Why don't you write white Mm -hmm. characters? And so black society working out this thing which is imposed on them and saying the quote I read, we are fascinated, we revolt, and we condone it. Mm -hmm. We allow it. It's one of the many choices. It's one of many choices in a system that is stacked against us already. So to fault anybody for doing this, Mm -hmm. is not faulting the system. So it sort of sets it up in a way as if we are you're making the wrong thing, as if the choices had been open from the beginning. As if
2: you really had a choice.
1: Right. Can you say something about Nella Larson? She was this enigmatic figure. We have this amazing biography now, you know, which is a really great Thaddeus Davis's biography, which has really uncovered who she was after the thirties. But there's always this she's the mysterious mm-hmm bright, successful moment, and then she kind of vanishes from the scene. That's
2: true, yeah. She had a very interesting life. And so, yeah, Thaddeus Davis's biography is magnificent. So is George Hutchinson's biography, you know, Life on the Color Line, I think is the... Right. And so they both, you know, tell these important stories about Larson. And mm-hmm. she, you know, was a woman who was very talented, and I think it was very difficult to find a clear path. You know, Sven Beckton loved her, and he wanted to see her succeed. Her career was really undermined by plagiarism accusations. You know, she
1: was a short story she published after the novels and then there was an accusation. There's a At the same time, those scandals happen sometimes. Happen. I mean, there's other authors I can think of oh who goodness. had an occasional scandal somewhere. Or, but this what happened to her after that?
2: Well, I, I don't know that her career really ever recovered from no. that. And because you know what happened is that she had the support of, of course, some friends, but some of them really enjoyed some of her in the kind of black literary world were amused and some, some of them outright enjoyed the fact that she was in the middle of that I think that was also quite surprising
1: of this controversy yeah, you mean yeah, they, they, yeah. They just, you know
2: they just sort of enjoyed seeing her struggle so that was tough and she was just a, I think a sensitive soul she never stopped she was always part of the, that cultural world and you know unfortunately she sort of ends up disappearing and I mean I think there's a clearer indication that she, I mean, she was suffering in some ways internally but you know she didn't have the career of the Langston Hughes and was right. that because you know of age of gender I mean I think you can make those a fair argument that right. she was you know slightly older and a woman and was not and I would say that movement was it was social right. men helping men right and women were getting what they could when they
1: could get it yeah if you think of the great luminaries of the Harlem Renaissance there are many many m- male names that come to mind right away mm-hmm. and many 800-page biographies that have been written about men, mm-hmm. fewer about women. That's right.
2: You know, so homosexual and homosexual, right? It was all a gay movement. Right. So you have this, you know, kind of this cluster of men who are interested in each other and their careers and treating, you know, help and advice and, right. you know, and, and women are not, you know, look at someone like Hurston. But she wasn't really interested in that, right? She wasn't interested in the fancy cocktail parties in New York. She wanted the world.
1: Right. But,
2: you know, but there was a cost in kind of being itinerant and being an individual. Neither Larson nor Herson, you know, they weren't anchored in the same way.
1: Right. In this system. Mm -hmm. Can you say something about the book? So, the book has always been around. People have always read it. Mm -hmm. And then it did kind of have a little bit of a renaissance in the, I don't know, 90s or something. And so it became, and now it's actually, which is wonderful, it's really a very common book to find on college reading lists. A lot of people read this book now, Mm -hmm. which is a a bit surprising. I think if people in 1929 would have thought 100 years from now, people are going to read this book about us. (laughs) This is the book, really. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) isn't
2: that interesting? But it has had, and I guess it serves a purpose lorison now is the one we read right we don't read jesse fawcett really and we do the credit
1: which is questions. plum bun which, yeah. which is another book yeah which is an interesting book which is mm-hmm. a different book about about a similar yeah. story right yes yeah, yeah.
2: exactly and that has a nice tidy, tidy ending.
1: <laughs> yeah, this one hasn't a very dramatic ending it's very I mean, <laughs> still, passing do you know
2: what ha- i'm still waiting to figure out what happens yes i know it's like oh, a- i just have to say i read this i <laughs> had the great pleasure to read a an advanced copy of Carla Holloway has a book coming out called the Death in Harlem that's sort of inspired by.
1: Oh, really? By the end of. A but, Yeah,
2: because again, there, there's a whole story there that, you know, <laughs> we don't you know. We can unpack and kind of meditate it, on. Yeah. It's like wonderful, yeah. fertile thing. But, and so that's wonderful. And I always I have this kind of sense of sadness too, you know, for Hurston, too, for Larson. What if they had been able to enjoy this right. in their lifetimes? Right. You know, like Hughes, his life is unfolding in real time, you know watching himself just get and never mm. and never staggered. Mhm. But unfortunately, unfortunately, you know we have these luminaries who did not in their lifetime because they could never ha- right have predicted.
1: Yeah, and this. I think there's a little bit of a conflation of Nella Larsen and their characters. There's sort of this yeah, because right. there's a suspicion that she did actually pass, there were a lot of rumors that she actually moved to Brooklyn and yeah. uh, but she never did. But we know now from the biographies, but this conflation of the tragic mm-hmm. mulatto, which is a trope really uncomfortable one, Mm -hmm. but it's there, and then they put Nella into the same box, Mm -hmm. and that satisfied people's curiosity until these biographers really did a lot of work, I think, to draw attention back to her.
2: I think the tragic mulatto trope is, you know, disturbingly inherently sexist. You know, the idea that a woman is taken over by her emotions that she doesn't understand, you know, she's hormonal. (laughs) I mean, that's really, you know, the Mm -hmm. idea that you, the mixed blood, you know, it just takes over your intellect and it mm-hmm. drives you to do things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it creates that disturbance and the imbalance in the humors, you know, somehow. And it seems like an exclusively female kind of problem, you know. Think about like, mixed race male narrators. They, they just are if anything, they're cunning. They're I mean, not they're, tragic. Yeah, they're not tra- I mean, look at Autobiography Next Colored Man. I mean, he's not, yeah, he's not, it's not, yeah. he tells us that he's true. I mean, he sort of, that becomes a platform. Like, I'm mixed race and I'm, but as opposed to the women who are kind of captured yeah, and rendered. Yeah. They can't even speak about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, What mm they're experiencing is out of control, Mm -hmm, right? So it always bothers me. And you're right. It's very tempting. biography of of Dorothy Dandridge, written by Donald Vogel. Yeah, biography frustrates me, if I can be so honest. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to be that's what drives it, this idea that poor Dorothy Dandridge. Yeah. She was tangled up with these white men. And it makes her really sad. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I think, well, what if, I mean, what if it's not that sad? Well, and again, what if this is a choice that she made and maybe it was a, you know, t- these various
1: relationships? And also, what if relationships were difficult but it wasn't that? That's the one key we have then mm-hmm. to say, oh, it's an interracial relationship, right. therefore tragic, therefore doomed to fail. Right. What if she just had relationships? I haven't yet met a relationship that actually is completely perfect start to finish. Absolutely. But then once you put race into it, that becomes the key. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is if that's the key, it sort of predestines the outcome.
2: But, and also, and the woman loses then.
1: Yeah, interesting. You that's know, so really why, interesting. Why does it have to? Right. I mean,
2: there was a great article I found, uh, I wrote this little piece called His Women, because, you know, Ben Bechton, you know, he loved black women. And there was an article written in, you know, The Tattler, the, you know, one of the Gus rags mm. of the 20s. And I'm forgetting now, excuse me, the author. And he was furious that these beautiful colored women, our best ladies, you know, are hanging out with this white dude. And I thought, well, that's why they're hanging out with the white dude, to piss you off. And to say, you know, and they're getting real pleasure from this, <laughs> right. from your being so annoyed by this, <laughs> right. because you think that he's selling their virtue, you know. Yeah. But Van Recten was a place for them to be defiant, and you know, that's what he's, a purpose he served. And so why, does it, why is that read in that way, that the black woman is losing? It's interesting. You know? Right,
1: right. But to go back to the beginning, I think the way you talked about Claire Kendry, mm-hmm. it is not just a loss, and we don't quite know what standard to apply mm-hmm. we end up judging her always in the wrong way it seems mm-hmm. that's what I find the book so important for that when you're done reading Passing and you, I've read it many times you read it and then you're tempted to make a decision on who's at fault who's wrong it's very dramatic there's terrible things that happen but then you realize she lives on in a way defiantly mm-hmm. she just is this character you can judge her all you want she's not going to pay attention to you
2: mm-hmm. I think you know as soon as you start using the word judge and I'm yeah. thinking about the scene and Their Eyes Were Watching God when the whole story is about Janie learning to become a storyteller. But at this crucial moment, when she's in a courtroom fighting for her life. Yeah. We don't hear her testimony. And Robert Stepto has, I think, the brilliant it's a way to think about it when he said, maybe it's a choice. You to, know, to, not, yes. to not speak. Right.
1: Interesting. And then I talked about this scene and she says she was more afraid of being misunderstood, misunderstood. than of death. And I asked Deborah Plant, I said, what does that mean? Deborah Plant said, well, Uli, actually she hadn't been afraid of death in this entire relationship with Tea Cake. When she was in the storm, she wasn't afraid to. That's what being alive means. Mm. And it actually was moving wow. because I thought the court scene is such a... And she said, no, no, no. You're getting this wrong. Janie was not afraid of death the whole time. Mm. That's what makes her so alive as a character. And there's something about Claire Kendry also. Mm. She lives on the abyss. That's alive.
2: Mm, that is alive. Uh, that Irene
1: is alive. says, you're taking all this risk. She goes, I'm alive. You're not really alive, I right? I
2: think that's absolutely right. And she cherishes it and... Putting yourself in that kind of danger means that you are aware of it all the time, that you are alive as opposed to the other thing that's within arm's reach, which is always a possibility. So, of course, Claire feels her aliveness living with this man who could, you know, brush her to the ground at any moment. And what is that like for her? But you would say you don't have Claire's story. What would her memoir look like? You know, could Claire Kendry sit down long enough to write a memoir? You know, she's on the move. She's. And so we need witnesses. But we also hmm. don't. We want these beautiful exotic flowers to grow, mm-hmm. you know, and not to sit down and sort of sit in a room and think about their lives. We want them to live, right? To show us how to live in some yeah. way, and so that's the gift that she has given us, right? I mean, that's a tremendous gift to give. Yeah.
1: Now I really want to thank you. Your book, Black as the Body, also has this beginning where you actually have this very traumatic and terrible experience, and say, "But I come out alive." Mm-hmm. Very alive, and then you talk about you know other stories in the book, but I think this powerful assertion of your voice to say this is this is what it means to be
2: alive—it mm-hmm. does change things. And I was thinking, you know, yeah, living with that danger, I guess, and the you know for me the recurrent you know adhesions in my bowel. But I was at a book event last night, and the proprietor said, "Well, we hope we have you for your next book." And I said, somewhat jokingly, but very truly, like, "I hope I am alive." to finish my next book. <laughs> They probably didn't want to hear that, Emily. They were like, okay, we didn't mean I to know, ask that. I, I, but, you know, I was like, oh, this is so shocking and upsetting, but it's like, <laughs> Did you do you Facebook? think you're going to be, <laughs> you have that assurance you'll be alive next no. year? So, you know, again, <laughs> right. yeah, I mean, right. Claire, she's yeah. living right there on the edge all the time. Yeah, yeah, There's no yeah. guarantee. Yeah. But of course, Irene thinks of her life stretching out, you know, beyond.
1: She knows what's going to happen, which is actually, in, in some ways, dull and terrifying. Claire has no idea. Yeah. It's,
2: well, you know, but here's the thing, though. Irene thinks she knows what's going to happen. Yeah. Claire knows
1: something else is going to. She knows. We don't know, knows. right? No right. one knows right. the ways of the universe. But I look forward, now to the book of Death in Harlem. It's that called. Harlem I'm going to look forward to that. Story. That is because <laughs> we really don't know what happens at the end. We don't.
2: Uh, Shout out to Carl Holloway.
1: Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Uh, really great conversation. Honestly, I had a great time. Thank so glad you. Glad we did this. Yes, and you yeah. know. If things work out, we'll do it again. (laughs) Right? We live to see another day. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you. Thank you.